Amen. Harvest, you can go and have a seat. And if you are a Harvest Kids in elementary class, you can go ahead and be dismissed to your class through that door in the fellowship hall uh, at this time. As it, isn't it awesome having them in here with us this morning? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really cool to see. That was uh, something that God put on the heart of one of our Harvest Kids volunteers. And so we're looking forward to do that. The first Sunday of every month, we'll have family worship. They'll come in here and join us because something awesome happens when uh, all of us are in the same room gathered together of all ages, worshiping the Lord. Like we, we didn't do that this morning so that that, uh, Harvest Kids volunteers can have like a 20-minute break once a month. Like that's not the point of that. Uh, we didn't do it so that they could uh, watch the worship team, though that's, that's cool as well. We did it uh, so that they would uh, get to, uh, to, to watch you and hear you worship the Lord and, and, and really model for them what it looks like to worship the only one that is worthy, and that's our King Jesus, and that's who we'll, we'll be talking about this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here uh, at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. Uh, and so whether you're joining us in person this morning, and I've seen some, uh, some new faces this morning, looking forward to meeting you after the service, uh, or if you're tuning in online, we are so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. So we're going to go ahead and move to our time in God's Word now together. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you would like to use to get your eyes on God's Word this morning. I invite you to meet me in First Samuel. Samuel chapter 31. We're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel 31 this morning. We're wrapping up our Heart of the Matter sermon series that we've uh, been in for several months now. We've been going all the way verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would still really uh, encourage you and challenge you and invite you even to, to uh, find some way to get your eyes on God's Word so you can follow along and we can look at the passage together. Uh, there's a couple ways you could do that. You could just pull out a phone and Google 1 Samuel 31. And because technology is awesome, it'll pop right up for you. Uh, or if you would prefer a paper Bible, we have some of those uh, on the table in the back of the room that you could make use of. And if you don't have one at all, we would just love for you to take one of those and keep it, use it, to have it as our gift to you. We would love for you to do that. But First Samuel 31 this morning, and so now as we come to our time in God's Word, let's just pause and ask for God's help as we turn to this passage. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning through singing. You are worthy and you are holy. And we worship you this morning and we look forward to worshiping you for all of eternity. Father, now we turn to a, a difficult, gruesome, hard passage of your word, Father. But still we, we trust what you've said about your word, that every single word of scripture is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit and is profitable for, for our doctrine, for our reproof for our training in righteousness. And so we ask that now as we turn to your word that you would be present and moving among us to challenge us, to encourage us, to equip us. Father, I ask if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know your son as their personal savior, that you would draw them to yourself this morning, be moving in their hearts to draw them to yourself. Father, encourage us. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, it was definitely one of the uh, at least most unusual assignments that I ever received in my time as a student. Now, to this day, I'm really still not exactly sure what in the world it had to do uh, with the, the course material that we were studying at the time, but, but I'm sure that Dr. Wade had his reasons, and uh, that fall afternoon in a seminary classroom, he told a bunch of, of mostly healthy, mostly in their early to mid-20s young men to go home for the weekend and plan their funeral, and write their own obituary. 
I'm sure you can imagine the awkwardness in the room uh, as a bunch of guys who really normally didn't have much of a reason to think about death uh, really wondered how in the world this, this seemingly non-academic assignment fit in with things like, uh, like writing systematic theology papers and parsing Greek verbs like we were, we were used to doing. But Dr. Wade knew exactly what he was doing. See, he knew that, that, that asking us to write our own obituaries would, would force us to come face to face with our own mortality. He knew it would cause us to consider the, the frailty and the brevity of our own lives and, and make us imagine and really consider what kind of a legacy we might leave behind when it was time for our death. Because when you write your own obituary, you, you think about more than the normal obituary details like where you were born and what you did for a living and who you were survived by. See, death is a very uncomfortable topic. Death is hard. It's tragic. It's painful. It's jarring, even, even disorienting for those who are left behind. We, we know that. And we know that now as a church, uh, even in ways that we did not know it two months ago, because we've seen people that we know and loved walk through this and, and face it head on. But death is the topic that Scripture puts in front of us this morning as we come to the end of 1 Samuel because in our passage this morning, we see the death of King Saul, this man that we've been studying for months now. In fact, if, you're, if your Bible has headings above the chapter, it probably actually says that the, 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 the heading for this chapter is the death of Saul. And normally when we study God's word, we, we, we tend to zoom in on the passage because we want to understand every little detail and nuance that's there. We, wanna, we want the facts. We want to get to the bottom line of, of understanding what's really going on here. Uh, but if we were to do that this morning, it really wouldn't take us very long at all because let, let me just give you a spoiler alert here. The very bottom line of this passage is what I just said. King Saul dies. That's it. That's the information that this passage teaches us. Not much else. Saul dies. But along with death comes the opportunity for us to zoom out and reflect on someone's life, to, to consider their obituary in a much more comprehensive way than just knowing their birth date, their occupation, and, and their favorite hobbies. And so as we come to the end of our sermon series and really the end of Saul's life here, that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. We're going we're to zoom out and reflect on Saul's life, but we're also going to take the time to consider our own lives and the topic of death and examine whether or not we are ready for that. In short, as the name of our sermon series has, we've, we've seen for months, we're going to get to the heart of the matter this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's our big idea this morning. Our big idea is really just our, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage, and in this case, really the entire book of 1 Samuel that, that just ties it all together for us. And our big idea is this, the heart of the matter is that my heart must be right with God. The heart of the matter, after all that we've looked at, the heart of the matter is that my heart must be right with God. And so as we look at 1 Samuel 31 this morning and consider the life and death of Israel's first king, we're going to have to be honest. We're going to have to tell the truth, and we're going to do that by looking at two main truths from this passage. We're going to look at, at the hard truth, but we're also going to look at the hope truth. And so if you're ready, let's go. Here's number one. Here's our hard truth this morning. My sin comes with a price. The hard truth is that my sin comes with a price. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 31, would you look with me at the first six verses of that chapter? And here's what it says. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, 
and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and, and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died. And his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men all on the same day together. It's tragic. One of the things that we really need to know to, in order to understand really the end of 1 Samuel is that, that as we've been looking at it, really everything that happens in chapters 28 through 31 actually happens in less than the time frame of about of a week. It seems like it's way more than that. It seems like it's way more complicated than that, but it's really in less than a week. And the reason that it might seem so disjointed and spread out in our minds is because really what the author of 1 Samuel has been doing has been leading us uh, to, to flip back and forth between the news channel that's been covering what's going on in Saul's life and the news channel that's been covering what's been going on in David's life. See, back at the beginning of chapter 28, the, the Philistines were getting ready to attack the Israelites and Saul was just like absolutely freaking out. Everyone, uh, he, he's, he's just panicking, and he's, even though he has no real relationship with God, uh, we, he, does what we, he does what we've seen him do countless times when he's been this desperate. He, he tries to ask God for a favor. But because of Saul's sin and his hardness of heart and his rebellion, at this point, God is no longer answering Saul. God is, has turned his back on Saul, and he's on his own at this point. We'll come back to Saul in just a second, but let's flip over the channel. Let's go, let's go see what's going on in David's life and see in chapters 29 and 30, and 30 that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, David has been living and fighting alongside the exact same Philistines that are getting ready to go to war with Saul. And everyone watching what's going on here is thinking that what's about to happen is that, that Saul and David are finally going to get the face off that we've been waiting for. They're finally going to get their, their chance to go at it with each other, but then God in his providence just removes David from the situation because God does not want him to have a hand in what's about to happen to Saul. So we flip back the channel to Saul in chapter 28. And what we find when we flip the channel back again is, is the king of Israel wearing some ridiculous disguise and going to see a, a medium, a witch, in order to get some answers in the middle of the night. He told this, this medium that he wanted to talk to Samuel, and, and since she was really only used to playing some, some ridiculous tricks that didn't really work anyway, when God actually allowed Samuel to appear, she absolutely freaked out and was shocked and was scared, just like you can imagine. But Saul and Samuel have this little conversation, and, and Saul tells Samuel that, that he's scared and alone and, and confused, and that the Philistines are closing in, and God's not answering many any, anymore. And, and so Samuel basically tells Saul two things. First, Samuel says, Saul, come on, we've, we've been over this before, Saul. Because of your continued disobedience, you have made yourself an enemy of God, and he has taken the throne away from you, and he is giving it to David. Like, we've been over this, Saul. We've, we've, we've had, like, do you need me to write it down for you at this point? Because we've said this multiple times, Saul. You need to get the point. And second, he basically says, it's over, Saul. This is the end of the road for you. This is it. In 1 Samuel 28, verse 19, Samuel tells Saul, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Tomorrow you are going to die. It's over, Saul. You've got 24 hours to live. 
So the next morning back in chapter 31, we, we turn the TV on and the first thing that we see is the, the breaking news banner flashing at the bottom of the screen and we see the, the battlefield reporter uh, with his, his helmet and his flak jacket reporting from the front lines in the Jezreel Valley and things are not going well for the Israelites. They're overmatched, they're outnumbered, and the Philistine army is using their, their chariots to actually absolutely turn this into a bloodbath. It's a horrible, gruesome scene. It's not going well, so the Israelites try to retreat up, up Mount Gilboa where the, the chariots couldn't go, but then, but then the Philistines just pull out their, their bows and arrows and just start lobbing arrow after arrow after arrow at the Israelites as they're retreating, and it's just wiping them out. Death all around. Horrible graphic scene. And I have to imagine that as Saul is retreating, Samuel's words from the very night before are echoing in his mind. This is it, Saul. This is how it's going to end. You've got minutes, maybe hours at the, at the most to live because the Philistines are closing in fast. And somewhere around him, Jonathan and his two other sons are killed in battle. And then Saul was mortally wounded and, and Samuel was right. It's over. Instead of having to experience the, the brutal torture and horrible things that he knew the Philistines would, would do to him if they found him, he decided to just go ahead and get it over with and fall on his sword. And verse 6 again says, thus Saul died. This is how it ends for Saul. So he died a, a gruesome, painful, lonely, horrible death. Why? Because sin comes with a price. Because sin comes with a price. Maybe you're like, Andrew, that's a, that's a really bold statement to make. Like, it's awfully bold to say that, that God killed Saul because of his sin. And you're right. It is a bold statement. It's a very strong statement. But Scripture tells us it's not speculation at all. It's actually what we're told in 1 Chronicles See, 1 Chronicles 10 is kind of a parallel passage to this. It, it tells us pretty much the exact same story with almost the exact same details. It includes a couple other things. And at the end of that, that chapter in 1 Chronicles, it gives us two extra verses that gives us some valuable information. See, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 say this. It says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord, and then he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. His sin came with a price. He had continued to disobey for, for years, and then he turned to the, this, this medium in chapter 28, and, and, and God finally says, that's it. It's enough. No more, Saul. It's not like he hadn't been warned about how serious those things were. It's all the, back, all the way back in chapter 15 after Saul had disobeyed the Lord for like the 8,000th time in a row and, and he took matters into his own hands and instead of killing all of the Amalekites and, and destroying everything like he had been told to do, he decided to start picking and choosing what he wanted to keep for himself and, and enjoying the spoils of war. And then when he got caught red-handed, he, he, he told Samuel, no, that's, I was going to sacrifice this stuff. This was not, this was not for me. And then here's what Samuel told him then in 1 Samuel 15. He says this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What do you think, Saul? 
Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's that, that's that medium that he's talking about in 31. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Listen, Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In other words, Samuel was very clear with Saul then. Your sin will come with a price. But instead of humbling himself and pursuing repentance, he just kept racking up the charges and and building up the tab that eventually someone was going to have to pay for. And that happened over and over and over and over and over again, all the way throughout 1 Samuel. We've seen it as we've studied it for the last few months. See, the heart of the matter is that my heart needed, Saul's heart needed to be right with God. The heart of the matter is that God wanted Saul's heart, but Saul never fully repented and gave it to him, and eventually that led to his death. The sin comes with a price, and now the king is dead. Passages like this can cause some pretty strong emotions to to come out of us and, and raise some pretty important questions for us. So when we see somebody like Saul die, our gut, our gut instinct, honestly, is to be like, yes, finally. We've been waiting for this for a long time, and he got, we finally got him. He's, he's done. When we see someone like Jonathan die in this passage, and our reaction to things like that are like, why? Why, God? Why Jonathan? He, he's, he didn't do anything here just got caught up in somebody else's and he didn't do anything. Why, why, why couldn't you let him live so that he could get to reign with David like they had dreamed about? Like He didn't do anything, so why God? And when we see anyone die, it's, even if it's only for just a second before we distract ourselves and, and push the topic from our minds, at least for a moment, the question is raised in us, what about me? What about my death? What if that were to happen? And so in all of that, we want to make sure that we're, we're thinking biblically. We always want to be thinking biblically, and there's no more important topic than death. So as we're considering the death of Saul this morning, let's make sure we're viewing death the way that God views death. So we're going to look at three realities about death from God's word. Three realities about death from God's word. Here's reality number one, is that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Again, it would be really easy for us to look at the death of someone like Saul here in 1 Samuel or the death of someone like Nero or Hitler in history or even the, the death of someone that you, you know today that maybe fits the description of wicked. Maybe somebody that's hurt you in horrible ways. And we, it's easier for us to look at that and be like, good, finally. It's about time. Like we've been waiting for this. But that is not God's heart for the death of the wicked. That is not his attitude when, when a wicked person dies. Ezekiel thirty three eleven says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desire that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In other words, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked because his heart is for everyone to re- pursue repentance and faith. That's his heart for everyone, his repentance and faith. But, but, but when death comes, eventually it closes the door on the opportunity for repentance and faith once and for all. After that, it's too late. That's why the heart of the matter is that our hearts must be right with God. So maybe you're listening to all this and we're considering the life of Saul and you're like, well, Andrew, let's, let's, not, let's not rush to judgment here. I mean, we're all sinners. We've, we've all got our stuff, right? 
We don't know really what's going on in Saul's heart, so let's not rush to any judgment. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, after all, he was like praying, or at least trying to pray like three chapters ago. So let's, let's, give, him, let's give him a free pass here. But remember, we're zooming out and we're, we're considering the totality of Saul's life here. And when we do that, we see a man who at best only casually associated himself with God when it benefited him the most. See a man who only played religious games to keep up the appearances and, and viewed God basically as a genie in the bottle to just to, to rub the lamp and get whatever he needed whenever he thought it was time for him to get what he needed. And then Saul, we see a man who had no regard for the authority of God's word over his life and who refused to obey the Lord and then ignored opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for repentance until 1 Chronicles 10 again tells us that Saul died for his breach of faith. We might say, well, that seems a little harsh. But see, God is an infinitely holy God and a just God. And because he is infinitely holy and just and that we are not, our sin comes with a price. Someone must pay the price for our sin. The first half of Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages, the penalty, the cost, the price for our sin is death. Yes, that's a steep price, but, but when we understand properly the holiness of God, we understand then the cost of our sin. We understand why it's so pricey when we understand how holy he is. That's why our cost is so high, and we cannot pay the penalty for our sin, and we will be eternally separated from God in a literal physical place called hell because we cannot pay the penalty for our sin. But not only is God a holy God and a just God, he's also patient and merciful because he he provides for us the very payment that he demands from us. A perfect sacrifice. Yes, the first half of Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the rest of that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because over 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, Jesus, to come to this earth, take on human flesh, be born as a baby, and then go live the, the perfect sinless life that you and I and Saul and David could never live. And then because he was the perfect payment for our sin, he went to the cross and died on the cross to pay the penalty for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And he rose from the dead, forever defeating sin and death, making salvation available for us if we would just repent or turn from our sins and place our faith in him alone for salvation, then we would be saved. And because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and desires that all would come to repentance and faith, he patiently and graciously gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, just like he gave Saul and just like he gives us. But Saul never took those opportunities from what we can tell. And when he died, he stood before God and all indications would lead us to believe that when he stood before God at the end of his life, the words that he heard were, depart from me for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. But even then, God did not take pleasure in the death of the wicked in Saul's death and neither should we. But again, that raises the question, well, what about somebody like Jonathan who doesn't fall into that very obviously wicked category? Well, what, do we, what do we do with someone like that? Well, reality number two from, about death from God's word is that God views as precious the death of his saints. That God views as precious the death of his saints. We, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but when we see someone like Jonathan die, our gut reaction is again, why? It's not fair. He had so much life left to live. He could have done so much good. He could have served the Lord so well in the, in the kingdom of Israel. 
And the reason that that's our gut reaction when we see something like that is because we're looking at people's lives through our point of view instead of God's point of view. It's extremely easy for us to get so focused on the here and now that we forget to view things in the context of eternity. It's easy for us to forget that that it's God who numbers our days and that it's God who determines our purpose for this life. And when, when someone completes their days and fulfills the purpose that he's given them, he calls them home, listen, not a millisecond before it's time and not an, a day too late. And when that happens, those who are in Christ, those who have been saved, will hear wonderful words from God. They'll, they'll hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's why, as Psalm 116.15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because they finished their race. They've accomplished their purpose. They've brought glory to God with their lives. And, and that's what we see in Jonathan's life. Jonathan's one of those unsung heroes of 1 Samuel. He was a loyal friend, a wise son, a humble man who lived full of faith in what God was doing, even when it meant uh, that his family wasn't going to get to continue to reign. And then he died at a tragic death because of someone else's sin. But still, 1 Samuel holds him up as an example to us. And while from our perspective, sure, it would be easy to say that that he was gone far too soon, the glorious reality is that that Jonathan's life was a life well-lived in God's timing. And yes, we mourn the loss of people like that, especially when their death is tragic and untimely. But we also rejoice in the precious homegoing of, of God's people because God views as precious the death of his saints. And that brings us to the third reality about death from God's word. And that's that all will die and stand in judgment before God. That third reality is that all will die and stand in judgment before God. It's one thing to consider the death of other people like we're doing this morning, but it's an entirely different thing to stop and think about our own. We avoid thinking about death at all costs. We run from things that make us consider the frailty of our lives. Like when another school shooting or, or a shooting shows up on the news, we, we see it, we, we mute the TV in front of our kids, we, we, we try to push that, that, that feeling in the pit of our stomachs away from us, and then we move on with life. When we see a friend share their cancer diagnosis on Facebook, we, we, we stop, we gasp, we pray for them, and then we just keep scrolling. We'll revisit this later. Because I don't want to think about my own mortality right now. I don't, I don't want to think about this. That's what we do. But there is no avoiding it. It's human nature to try to avoid death, but the reality is that all will die and stand in judgment before God. As Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. That means that everyone who's ever lived will, is accountable to God for everything they've ever said, done, and thought. And every single one of us will stand before God and answer for our lives. You, me, Saul, David, Jonathan, everyone. And the judge of the universe that we will stand before knows it all. He knows far more than the factual details of an obituary. I mean, think about it. The details of Saul's newspaper obituary could have read something like this. It could have said, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin tragically passed away in battle last week. Born in Gibeah, he went on to proudly serve his country as the first king of the nation of Israel. He was preceded in death by his father, Kish, and his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. And he is survived by his wife, Ahinoam, and his sons, Mephibosheth and Ishbosheth, and his daughters, Merib and Michael. 
But we all know that Saul's obituary does not tell the full story of his life, and neither will ours. Those are just a bunch of details. But God knows the heart of the matter, and just like Saul had to stand before him in judgment, so will you and so will I. The question then is, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment? Our sin comes with a price. There is no getting out of it. Someone will pay the price for your sins. Either it will be you in eternity, in hell, paying the price for your sins, or it will be have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf. It's only a matter of if you want to face it alone and pay for it yourself, or if you want to face it with Jesus Christ as your advocate and covered in his blood that was shed on your behalf. The choice is yours. Let's be very clear. That's a decision you have to make for yourself. You can't get credit for your wife's faith. You can't get credit for your parents' belief. You can't can't get credit for your casual association with church. You have to answer for God. You will either do it by yourself or with Jesus Christ as your advocate and the one who died for you. So I have to ask you the question, if you were to die today and stand before God, would you be ready? Have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Remember, the good news of the gospel is that the payment that God demands from you, he has provided for you, if only you'll accept it. So have you accepted it? If not, would you make today the day of salvation? I would plead with you to do that. Would you run to Jesus and be saved? Listen, if you have any questions about what that looks like in your life, there are a lot of people in this room that would love absolutely love the opportunity to have a conversation with you about what that, what that means, where you stand with God. We would love to do that. Listen, we're having a baptism Sunday next week, as, as Dan already said, so how awesome would it be if you made today the day of salvation, and then the next week and seven days from now, you took the first step of obedience in your walk with Jesus Christ and said, I'm going to go be baptized and publicly share what God has done in my life. How awesome would that be? But don't leave here today without knowing where you stand with Jesus. There is no more important decision you'll ever make because, again, the hard truth is your sin comes with a price and someone will have to pay. I wish I could say that the rest of 1 Samuel gets better, but unfortunately it doesn't. Honestly, it's hopeless. At this point, it's the the absence of hope that that in what we're about to see that actually is pointing us to the absolute hope that we have. And so our second main truth this morning is the hope truth. The hope truth that King Jesus is my only hope. The King Jesus is my only hope. If you still have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 31, look back with me at verses 7 through 13. It says this, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of, of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. 
In the first six verses, we saw how Saul died, and now the rest of the chapter tells us how his people reacted. And let me just say again, there is zero hope in what we just read. What happened on the battlefield that day robbed these people of all their hope. Their king is dead, and so is his dynasty. Like what we just read, the first, second, and third in line to the throne are, are dead. They've been killed. So like, who's in charge now? There doesn't seem to be any continuance of the government other than the fact that David's like out there somewhere. And, and, and from our, our terms that we use today, I don't think he's exactly included in the, the plan of succession, at least in Saul's mind. So the people in the surrounding cities have lost their safety blanket of military protection and their arch enemies are invading and occupying their land. There's, there's literally war criminals moving in to loot and hurt and take everything. And the first thing that we're told is when the Israelites saw all of that, they just got up and left. They're not, they're not going to stick around for what was next and find out how life of the Philistines is going to be. Life as they knew it was over. They're not interested in seeing what this is going to be in the future and they couldn't see how it would ever get better, let alone return to normal, so they just left. They've lost all hope for the future. Still, it's going to get worse. The next day, the, the Philistine army went back out to the battlefield to collect the spoils of war, and, and when uh, they found Saul and his son's bodies, they, they just mutilated him like Saul knew that they would uh, before he died. They cut off Saul's head and took off his armor, and then the sixth celebration started. Verse 9 says that they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, literally uses the word euangelion, gospel there. And so what's really happening here in a sick way is they, they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to, to preach their gospel in the house of their idols and to all the people. And what is their gospel, you ask? Well, their, their gospel is that our idols have won. The God of Israel has failed. We win. At least that's what it looks like to them. See, this was always about more than just a land dispute in the Philistines' minds. To them, this was about their idols, their gods going to war with the God of Israel. And to showcase their idol's victory over Israel, 1 Chronicles 10 tells us that, that when they took Saul's head and put it on display in the temple of Dagon, like remember Dagon? He's one of their idols. Back in 1 Samuel 5, all the way at the beginning of our series, when the, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they set it up in the, the temple of Dagon, but, but when they came in the next morning, that idol had fallen flat on its face before the Ark of the Covenant. I'm like, well, that's weird. So they set it back up again. And the next morning when they, they came in again, the, that, that idol had fallen again on, his, on, on the floor and, and its head had broken off and its arms had broken off. So it's no accident then when these people finally killed Saul, they took his head and put it on display in the temple of Dagon as if to say, see who got the final word here? Not your God. It was our idols. We've, we're, we're the ones that have won here. Because in their minds, they couldn't tell the difference between the very presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant and the head of a dead monarch. And they put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, another one of their idols, and they nailed his, his body to the wall of a former Jewish city as if to say, again, your king is dead. You have no hope. Your, your king is nailed to the wall outside. There's nothing left for you to, to hope in. But then some men from Jabesh Gilead risked their lives and made the 12-mile journey at night across the Jordan River to, uh, into Philistine territory to come recover Saul's body and his son's bodies and bury them properly. 
And again, that's how 1 Samuel ends. With Saul buried under a tree in the middle of nowhere. The devastation of war is off in the background. The screams of women and children hearing the news of their dead husbands and fathers from war is filling the air. The fear of what's next is on everyone's mind. I can't help but think this is not how it was supposed to end. The scene in 1 Samuel 31 is not what the Israelites expected when when they demanded a king back in chapter 8. It's not what Saul had hoped for when he was chosen to be king in in chapter 9. It's not what was on anyone's mind as they celebrated his coronation in chapter 10. I mean, picture Saul's coronation with all the the celebration and the banners and the music and the cheering as they they dreamed about how their new king, who was taller and more handsome than anyone in the land, this is the man who's going to lead us to greatness. He's going to bring our country into significance. He's going to put us on the world stage, and he's going to make us something. All of their hope had been in that king. But now their king's buried under a tree in the middle of nowhere. So let me just say, you will experience the same disappointment and despair and hopelessness every single time you put all of your hope in something or someone or some job or some business in someone who has no business sitting on the throne of your heart. Because the heart of the matter is that your heart must be right with God. The problem with these people is that they had put all of their hope in the wrong place back at Saul's coronation in chapter 10, there were a couple of men hanging around the back of the celebration. They're just kind of off in the distance. They're watching what's happening. And they ask one of the most profound questions really in this entire book. They're just watching what's going on and one of them leans to the other. I said, how can this man save us? I mean, he's impressive and all, but really, how can this new king save us? The answer is he couldn't. And that's the point of 1 Samuel. The point is that we need someone better. We need a true savior and a true king who, as Isaiah chapter 9 says, would hold the government on his shoulders and be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, we need that king. Not this king. We need that king. Friends, the lack of hope in 1 Samuel 31 is all pointing forward to the hope that belongs solely in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, in King Jesus He's our only hope, and, and not just for salvation like we've already talked about, but he's our only hope for, for everything. For everything. Throughout history, when one king dies and another ascends to the throne, the traditional proclamation that's been made for centuries is the king is dead, long live the king. The king is dead, long live the king. That, that phrase seems like such a contradiction because at the exact same time, it's, it's both full of, of an expression of sorrow, the king is dead, and hope. Long live the king. But the reality in that statement is that a few years or maybe a few decades at best will go by with the, the new king reigning and the, the people full of hope. But eventually that hope will die too. 
and they'll have to say it all over again. The king is dead, long live the king. And then they'll do it again in a few decades for the next king and the next one and the one after that. But friends, not so with King Jesus because he is our unending hope and our forever reigning king. Don't get me wrong, when they nailed him to the cross, they thought they had killed our king for good. In fact, they crucified him under a sign that said, King of the Jews. Then they buried him in a borrowed tomb. They they rolled a stone in front of that tomb and they told themselves, it's all over. This so-called king will never be heard from again. He's, He's dead. But friends, death could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. And three days later, he rose from the dead because King Jesus is alive. Then he ascended to heaven where he is reigning right now and will continue reigning forever. So when our hearts are right with God, we can say with full hope and full confidence, long live the king. Once and for all, we can say long live the king. At the same time, somewhere in Israel in the days after Saul's death, I'd like to imagine, just use my sanctified imagination for a second, imagine a wise, godly, hope in the Messiah-filled man sitting there under that tree with his morning cup of coffee, Saul's grave over to the side, the devastation of war off in the distance, and he's looking forward to his future hope. And even though it wasn't written for many centuries later, I can imagine him just softly singing the words to the hymn that Charles Wesley wrote, and he's just softly singing there, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Then we can join him on the second verse. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Friends, that's our hope because King Jesus is our only hope. First Samuel is done. King Saul is dead. But long live King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, long live your son, King Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King. Father, thank you that even in a passage of so much hopelessness, so much hard things, so much difficulty, so much pain, there's hope. Think of what King Jesus said where where he said, in this world you will experience tribulation and trials, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Father, that's our hope. Help us to hope in him. Help us to not be distracted and put other things on the throne of our heart to rule over us. Make it solely King Jesus. Father, again, if there is someone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, would you save them today? Would you call them to yourself? Would you break down walls of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency like we've seen in Saul's life? break down all of those walls, bring them to a point where they would say, I must be saved. I need to run to Jesus because I cannot save myself. And he is my only hope. Do that this morning. And for those of us that do know him as our Savior, Father, would you encourage us in our hope 
as we walk out these doors this morning and walk back into hard things in real life, Father, help us to remember that we have an unending hope that will never die, that is currently reigning and is currently caring and is currently walking with us right now. Lift our eyes to him and be glorified in the worship that we give. In Jesus' name, amen.